Hello, I'm Reverend Angel Kyoto Williams. I'm a writer, activist, author, and ordained Zen priest. And you're listening to Mindful by Design, a Himalaya learning audio course about mindfulness, meditation, evidence of how it all works, and some guidance to make it work for you. Over the next episodes and accompanying meditations, I'll introduce you to some core principles of mindfulness practice through both science and lived experience. To access the exclusive guided meditations, go to Himalaya.com mindful and enter promo code mindful at checkout to get your first 14 days free. Let's get started. On today's episode, we dig into the differences between compassion and empathy. Many of us are approaching mindfulness and the whole idea of it from very different backgrounds. We come from different religious backgrounds, cultural backgrounds, and we have different heritages. And even though in many ways it's made up race as well. For most of its history in the US, the seeds of mindfulness lived in the Buddhist arena and specifically with Western Buddhists. Now we're seeing this emerging field, a lot of which is bolstered by an incredible amount of science, which I think is helping a lot of people be able to reframe it away from just someone else's belief and relate to it as something that is actually happening to us and in our bodies, something that we can observe and something we can understand. Dr. Dodi is the founder of the Center for Compassion and Altruism Research and Education at Stanford. I wanted to speak to Dr. Dodi because he changed the way I think about the relationship meditation and mindfulness has to compassion and empathy dramatically some years ago when we first met in Amsterdam, and I was really happy to be able to sit down and speak with Dr. Dodi again. I'm really happy that I had this chance to, <laughs> to be able to say, have a reason to have someone try to go and find you and see if we can do this. <laughs> This podcast is like a little short series, and we were going over the concept of it. It wasn't all together when it started, but at some point I got this list and it said empathy, and I furrowed my brow and said, I have a thing with the empathy train that has been so much a part of our last few years, and I feel like it's like the tolerance of yesteryear. It's like, here we are talking about how to try to navigate, you know, real justice around race. And there's a point at which people were talking about tolerance. And so I feel like empathy is comparative for me. It's like we're, we're really needing to get someplace different and deeper. And we're skirting along the outsides talking about empathy. That's how it lands with me. And it reminded me immediately, of course, of our conversation that was has been so impactful when we were in Amsterdam and you spoke about the differences between empathy and compassion. And I literally, there is not a conversation that I have had up until this time that I don't then recount our conversation. And so it would be great if, why don't we just start there? Sure. Well, you know, I think a lot of people get confused with the uh, term empathy and think it relates to compassion. And you have to remember that empathy can be any emotional state. It doesn't have to do with suffering at all. You can have empathic joy. But that being said, there are also a number of people who actually use empathy like compassion. But from my perspective, I put it in the context of taking on the emotional state of another person versus 
what we think of as compassion, which is recognition of another suffering with a motivational desire to alleviate that suffering. Would you say more about taking on another person's emotions? What can that look like? Well, it's interesting because then you have to also compare it with these other terms, which we frequently use, such as sympathy or pity, right? You know, pity is looking at a situation from a superior position and you're making an assessment of it. And because you're superior, you're going to intervene. Sympathy is recognizing suffering, but it doesn't necessarily have to do anything with empathy. It's more of a cognitive aspect. Then empathy is like so many of us, you know, we want to feel the other person's emotional state because then we can better connect with them. And that's deeply embedded within us. Uh, so that's how I use uh, the term empathy. Does empathy also come up with uh, negative emotions? Because one, I guess one of the things that uh, rubs me about it is that I have a sense of not just that there's a level of, you know, a very important aspect of it, of empathy missing, but also that it's a little more neutral. It implies something that's more neutral than the way that I think about compassion. Is that right? Or Correct. I mean, empathy, again, is simply taking on the emotional state, but it requires you to do nothing beyond that. And what do we do with the idea that, you know, we can't alleviate actually everyone's suffering? Well, this is the nature of uh, compassion fatigue, right? Because when you're so overwhelmed with so much suffering, then you shut down. And I think in some ways you talked about Black Lives Matter and some of these other, you know, situations, you know, people see so much of it. They're going, oh, my God, what can I do? I, I can appreciate let's say this situation that involves a small group of people or one person, but my God, you know, we have all this uh, uh, police violence, get all these individuals, we have all these different things going on. You know, how can I uh, impact that? And I think that's the challenge for most people. Well, at least at the time of this recording, and I imagine by the time that this is released, uh, we're in the midst of this pandemic and, uh, People have taken to calling the Black Lives Matter or the or the response to aggression against Black people in particular and people of color, calling it the 400-year pandemic. And so what does it mean to the human mind and system that we're navigating so many different stressors? Well, I think it's, it's very difficult. First of all, uh, unfortunately, we have, for many people at least, the stressor of Donald Trump as president. And uh, I think that is uh, very, very challenging for people who are more empathetic and who have a desire to see things change. Then you have, of course, the pandemic, which results in several things. One is this isolation and separation, and for many people, loneliness, in the face of economic trauma from losing their jobs, in the face of potential homelessness, from not being able to pay your rent, in the face of food insecurity because you can't buy food. And so what happens oftentimes in those situations is people actually withdraw because they don't have the human resources necessary to connect with others because they themselves are suffering and have to watch out you know, for their own situation. 
that being said, I think, you know, you mentioned the pandemic of 400 years. I mean, you know, that's another huge issue that in many ways, fortunately, has come up now versus not coming up at all, or at least the manner in which it's come up. And I think that's forced many people to really look at themselves and to say, you know, what have I done or what have I, frankly, ignored? And in the midst of all of this, I'm, I mean, I'm feeling I'm feeling all of it just even talking about it. I feel like I feel, you know, a wash in it again. And the sense of all of this convergence of, you know, stress and strain. And I love that you said that it is better that it has come up than not coming up and that it's come up now. It is not lost on me that that is not the kind of response that I hear from people that, uh, and I'll, I'll give a little hint, he's a white male by what I can see, white-haired from a little tad bit of aging, and this professional title as a neurosurgeon, this is not what we usually hear from someone that you know, fits those markers, those social markers. What is it about you that makes you so sensitive? <laughs> uh, you know, the interesting thing is that, first of all, the reality is obviously, as you point out, I am white and a male, and it is easy to make a judgment based on a person's position or title that they have benefited from the uh, nature of white privilege and uh, frankly, uh, don't have insight or self-awareness about that. And as a result, don't care uh, about not only how it's affected them, but how it's affected all those around them who don't have that privilege. And uh, as you know, from my own background, I grew up in uh, challenging circumstances with a father who was an alcoholic and a mother who had had a stroke and was paralyzed chronically depressed, attempted suicide uh, multiple times. My family was on public assistance essentially my entire life. And, uh, you know, neither of my parents had gone to college. So the idea of reaching the position that I'm presently at, uh, frankly, uh, was essentially impossible. If you don't have resources, if you don't have mentors, if you don't have money, if you don't have access, uh, frankly, uh, the likelihood of success is almost zero. If you're a minority, it's probably less than that. I mean, it's uh, a horrible situation. And I was blessed by the fact that when I was uh, younger, at, at the age of 12, I walked into a magic shop and a woman at the magic shop, although she was the owner's mother and knew nothing about magic, she was an extraordinarily kind and giving person. You know, I tell people that when I walked in there, you know, here was this woman who had this radiant smile that basically uh, embraced you and, uh, uh, and made you feel safe. And she was also not judging you, right? And, and this is one of the uh, issues that happened to so many of us, whether you're a poor child or an adult, you know, if somebody's dismissive of you, they don't look at you as an, a human being, they don't look at you as an equal. And she looked at me as an equal and asked me a number of questions. And we had a nice conversation. And at the end of it, she offered to help me. And uh, she said, I'm, you know, here for the next six weeks. And if you show up every day, 
uh, I think I can teach you something that could change your life. And what she taught me was a meditation practice, you know, how to relax the body, how to uh, breathe, how to maintain attention. And then uh, once that happened, she taught me the concept of uh, this negative dialogue that so many of us have going on in our head, that it was not a true narrative, that it was uh, false. She then taught me a way how to change that. So from one of being hypercritical to one of self-affirmation and positivity. And what happens in that situation is once you stop beating up yourself, you are also uh, more likely to look around you and see that everyone is suffering. And although it may not be obvious, and while my personal situation never changed, what did change was my view of the world and uh, the despair, the anger, the hopelessness, uh, the frustration I let go of. And the problem is when you carry those types of negative emotional states, other people can read those and they want to separate themselves from you. You know, one of the things that felt really important about having you here is, as you know, many of us are approaching mindfulness and the whole idea of mindfulness from very different backgrounds, right? We come from different religious backgrounds, different cultural backgrounds, different heritage and for most of the U.S. history of having, you know, whatever the seeds of mindfulness was, this sort of lived in the Buddhist arena, and now we're seeing this emerging field, not the least of which uh, bolstered by science and an incredible amount of science, which I think is helping a lot of people to be able to reframe it away from, you know, just someone else's belief and... Uh, begin to relate to it as something that is actually happening to us in our bodies, something that we can read and understand. Would you share a little bit with those of us that are not sure how to tell <laughs> whether we are actually becoming a little bit more compassionate? What is it? What are the markers? What do we look for? How do we know that we are uh, shifting? Or how do you, maybe I should, maybe the better question is how do you know? <laughs> Yeah, well, you know, it's interesting you mentioned Buddhism. As you see over my right shoulder, there's the picture of the Dalai Lama, and mm. my left is. <laughs> <laughs> and over here. <laughs> but that being said, I'm not a Buddhist. <laughs> uh, but you've got it. But you got it. You got a good friendship going on there. <laughs> exactly. Uh, but interestingly enough, uh, I have friendships going on with a number of spiritual and religious leaders. And why is that? Because, frankly, I'm an atheist. And uh, the reason is because of the science. And, uh, you know, what do we know? We know that uh, we have this um, connection between our brain and the organs in our body, especially our heart, from uh, the autonomic nervous system, which has the sympathetic portion and the parasympathetic portion. And, you know, of course, the sympathetic portion is what we think of uh, in terms of fear. So you have this fear, flight, fight, uh, or freeze response. And then you have this other, which we call the rest and digest system. And, you know, what happens between the two of them? How are they regulated? Well, especially in modern day society, many people's sympathetic nervous system is chronically engaged just by the nature of living in the modern world. And if you're, uh, poor, if you're a person of color, if you have these other aspects, which also 
create the narrative of you, you know, suffering more, it's even more so in terms of this uh, engagement of your sympathetic nervous system. The other side, of course, is the parasympathetic nervous system, which really is the place where we should all be. This is this sense of calm, sense of connectedness, sense of interest in what is going on with the other person. When you're in this mode, your executive control function works its best. You're more thoughtful. You're more discerning. You can pull up memories, prior experiences, uh, literature, uh, a variety of things Mm -hmm. that make you more thoughtful, receptive, and you're more creative, and ultimately you're more productive. Because when you're in the sympathetic nervous system phase of things, uh, or it's engaged, you're uh, fighting for survival. You're not thinking about uh, all the different possibilities. And as a result, you are constricted in terms of what is available to you to access to survive versus uh, just being able to survive. And this is very, very important because the disparity between how your physiology works in each position is dramatically different. When your sympathetic nervous system is engaged, as I said, you shut down in terms of other possibilities other than survival. And as a result, you're not as open, you're not as engaging, your heart rate is increased, your blood pressure is increased, your uh, immune system is depressed, your uh, stress hormones are elevated, the production of what we call uh, inflammatory proteins is dramatically increased. And obviously, on a short-term basis, none of this really matters uh, because the goal is for you to survive. And on the savanna in Africa, you know, if you were in that space, and those events occurred, it would allow you to uh, divert blood from your uh, uh, GI tract into your muscles, allow you to run fast, you dilate your pupils, you can see better, and you can run up a tree to avoid the lion, uh, and that's great. And then you go right back to your baseline. But for many people, that type of chronic stress has a huge, huge negative uh, overall effect on health whereby if you're able to engage the parasympathetic nervous system, you're much more open, you're more sharing, you're more thoughtful, you're more giving. As a result, your you know, heart rate is decreased, your blood pressure is down, your immune system is boosted, the uh, expression of inflammatory uh, uh, proteins is decreased, your cortisol levels are decreased. And unfortunately, on some level, this has to do with what we call tribalism. If you are around friends and family, of course, you're also calmer, more relaxed. These are friendly people. If you're not in that situation, uh, then that creates uh, this sense of stress and anxiety as well. And it's interesting because in times of plenty, the issue of tribalism isn't particularly important. There's plenty to go around for everyone. When the narrative is either real or created, that there is uh, not enough, that uh, someone is trying to take your job, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, then, of course, you have a tendency to pull in and not be as open. And you're also able to be much more manipulated via uh, a narrative that someone may want to project. So 
I mean, if it has something to do with tribalism, and we are in a country that's an enormous experiment in differentiation, multiculturalism, um, you know, multi-heritage, multi-ethnic, multi-gender, multi-sexual, like, you know, multi-multi, or I like to say we're just really, we're really trans, you know, we're kind of like trans a bunch of things. Are we doomed? <laughs> are we doomed that because there are stressors, are we doomed to not be able to pull it together and be in relationship with our differences? I think a third of the people are potentially doomed. <laughs> I, I mean, <laughs> that's good. I, I like honesty. That's good. <laughs> well, yeah. I mean, you have a third of the people who you know are sort of more to the right. Uh, they're against LBGT issues. They're against minorities. They're against immigrants. And the reality is, for those people, is they've been, uh, I think, fed a false narrative. You know, the reality is that until recently. Uh, there has been this sense that somehow America is white and that whites, therefore, deserve certain privileges. And as the reality becomes apparent that, as an example, in Los Angeles, it's uh, mostly um, immigrants and minorities, right? And then suddenly whites aren't in charge. They're not holding positions of power and they feel very, very threatened. And as a result, they are using whatever tools they can to maintain their positions of power. And sadly, of course, that translates into gross racism. And if you have a leader who states that is wrong, who presents a narrative that we must work together, that this is reality, that we're all in this together, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, and doesn't demonize one side or another, then it does work. But when you have someone who actually benefits by the separation and saying, you know, we have to watch out for this group of people and be afraid of this group of people, et cetera, et cetera, then that only flames the fires. So to answer your question, though, I think Trump has been a gift in the fact that he's brought many of these things out. I think that we do have the possibilities of everyone working together to make uh, America and the world a better place. But we have to have values and standards that uh, apply to everyone and that we have to drown hate with love. And that's the only way we're going to change. Really? (laughs) Change people's (laughs) hearts and minds. Maybe I didn't sound like I was loving, but I'm just stating facts. No, that's awesome. I'm just, tell me more about that. I mean, what, you know, there's a lot of this, um, conversations that we're having about mindfulness is one of the other things that I notice about it is that we we do shy away from that most ineffable of actionable living. It, I think of it as action, but we we shy away from the idea of love. What what does that look like to you from your perspective as a neuroscientist and your studies? I think what the challenge for each of us is is to look out in the world and see the other as ourselves. Because once you're able to do that, then you cannot act evilly or, or bad towards the other. Uh, but that takes a lot, of, a lot of work. You know, if you look at people like the Dalai Lama or Amma or some of these other uh, people, who people have this natural inclination to want to be near or connect with is that these people give them 
unconditional love. Unconditional love means that the projections that many people uh, give off in some ways to protect themselves from judgment, like, you know, I have this position, I'm that, I'm this, they're not needed. And, and frankly, they cause an immense amount of uh, suffering themselves because they're not authentic. So I think, you know, being able to sit and, generally speaking, uh, be able to have an open heart, to look at people and events through the perspective of love and how I can best be of service is certainly the ideal that we should all strive for. My concern when you spoke is uh, a lot of us are a little bit allergic to the whole idea of a lot of work. So what is the... (laughs) What a shock. Okay. okay. Um, You know, 14 years old and six weeks and your life was changed. Where do we begin? Nothing comes easy, whatever it is, right? I, I mean, if you want to be a millionaire, you have to do a certain amount of work. Yeah, if you want to be an, an athlete, it takes a certain amount of work. I, I think this is one of the failings of some people as they think that magically something's supposed to happen to them uh, effortlessly and all will be good. And that does happen sometimes, and I think that's wonderful if it does. But, you know, for most of us, it does take some work and you have to reach out. And what I would tell people is I think you need to look to people who inspire you to be your best self and either connect with them or model yourself after them. James, I have two questions. One is one of the things that we share is um, in whatever way that that means something to each of us, we're different life paths. Uh, Both of us have uh, what I would like to say is we have found a way to reorganize our internal structures. What would you say to people about what we can do internally, I have this thing that I say, like, we can't wait until the systems acquiesce. So what do we do in the meantime? What have you done? You know, I've tried to espouse this philosophy and bring all the data together uh, to demonstrate uh, actually the power of compassion. In 2017, we published this book called The Oxford Handbook of Compassion Science, and it brings together all that literature. And, you know, the literature actually is is fairly clear. If you, first of all, if you yourself are compassionate to yourself, it has a huge uh, positive impact, but it also allows you to be compassionate to others. When you're compassionate to others, and whether, you know, we're talking about a large scale in the government, in companies, whatever, people respond to that. They respond to it to be better people. They respond to it in terms of helping others. They respond to it in terms of their physiology working at its best. Every aspect of human behavior is improved if you're compassionate. And, uh, you know, the path that I've been on, if you will, is promote that reality. And I think clearly there are a significant number of people who get it. But you have to step out of your own perspective of what's in it for me versus what's in it for everyone And when everyone benefits, I benefit. I have one more question. When we met, your your book had just come out, and I looked and I was like, it's been translated into 31 languages. I think it's actually almost 40 now. Oh, my goodness. (laughs) No, it's, uh, yeah. What are people connecting to in the magic show? Well, when I first wrote the book, I, I thought it was 
a particularly American story about overcoming, you know, hardship and difficulty, right? And what I recognize is that it's actually a story for everyone who uh, has had to overcome some hardship. One of the narratives I think that we're guilty of sometimes is this belief that, well, I had it rough, but everyone around me didn't have it rough. Most people have had a lot of challenges and difficulties. And this was my own false narrative is that I would look out and I'd see somebody who, you know, looked like everything was all great. And when you really talk to them, you know, they've overcome incredibly, incredibly difficult things. Um, you know, the book has been a bestseller in the United Arab Emirates and Poland uh, and uh, South Korea. Uh, it's it's been actually an interesting uh, phenomenon. And I get emails from people all over the world. The other interesting thing, which your viewers uh, may or may not know or listeners, is there is uh, a group called BTS. Have you heard of them? They're the South Korean K-pop, Korean pop music group. Uh -huh. so oh, yeah, 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 yeah. In the world, right? Uh-huh. They actually used my book for their third album. And there's a, book, <laughs> a, 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 a song in there uh, in that album called Magic Shop, actually. Wow. Uh, so, so it's been a, a very interesting thing. Yeah. So Dr. Doty's book, Into the Magic Shop, A Neurosurgeon's Quest to Discover the Mysteries of the Brain and the Secrets of the Heart is available in almost 40 languages. And so <laughs> right. every single one of you listening to me certainly and can get a copy of it. And I feel like one of the most clear things that I have heard in this time together is that you have taken up the mandate to continue to teach others. And we're all grateful for that. Well, I think, uh, you know, each of us is on a path. I hope most, if not all of us, are on the path to uh, improve the lives of others. The goal, though, is to uh, be of service. Well, thank you. You have been of great service to, to me here. And I, I look forward to us being able to catch up again soon. A lot has been said about the relationship that mindfulness has to empathy. But if we really want to understand how an individual mindfulness practice affects the world around us, we have to understand compassion. If we leave compassion on the table, then we leave mindfulness's most powerful potential, the possibility of impacting society for the better, untapped. That's what I got out of this rich conversation with Dr. Doty. How about you? Thank you for listening to Mindful by Design. If you're a person that has a mindfulness practice and you want to make sure that compassion is part of it too, check out the Mindful Certification and Training at mndflcertification.com. Join us next time for another awakening conversation. To get the most out of this course, Check out the guided meditations that accompany each episode, available only on the Himalaya Learning Platform. Himalaya Learning is an audio learning platform that provides bite-sized courses from world-class thinkers and industry experts to fuel your personal and professional growth. To access exclusive content for this course and others like it, go to Himalaya.com mindful 
and enter promo code MINDFUL at checkout for your first 14 days free. We hope you enjoy.